Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. Hi, fans. I'm excited for another episode to have this amazing guest, Val Constine. She's an elite runner, steeplechaser, and Olympian. Val graduated from the University of Colorado with a degree in environmental engineering. Her first year out of college was just in 2019 to 2020, which, as we all know, was the year of the pandemic. And I think that hit her really hard, which is something we'll probably dig into on this episode today. But her second year out of college, she landed a full-time job while training full-time and all of that paid off as her dreams came true as she made it on the Olympic team for Tokyo. So we're super excited to have Val as a guest to talk about all things running, nutrition, training, life. So Val, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Lindsay, for having me. Of course. Yeah. So let's kick off with just the excitement of the 2021 year that you had and getting to the Olympics, you know, just a couple years after college and making that team and everything. What I know this is such a broad question, but overall, what was that experience like for you of just, you know, seeing all your hard work pay it off after years and making the Olympic team? It was very emotional because I had put so much work into it and I, you know, my dreams and goals had changed as kind of my performance had changed as well. And so while it wasn't always my dream to make an Olympic team, in fact, it wasn't even (laughs) something that I thought about until Portland Track Fest, I had put in so much work in general to try to make the post-collegiate running worth it, that to see everything really come together in that one race, it was just one of the best days of my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And yeah, I think even just making that decision of to try for post-collegiate running at a high level or not, what was making that decision like for you? Because it's, you know, it's like, or do I, well, and we'll talk about this, but you, you did get a more air quote normal job, right? Because pursuing running as a career is just really, really challenging. So what, what was kind of your thought process as you were trying to figure out, like, do I pursue this or what do I do after college? Yeah, good question. Well, luckily here in Boulder, it's pretty manageable to try and be an elite runner and not have a contract. It's very common because Boulder's full of incredible runners and very few of them sponsored or paid to run. And so I always knew that that was something that I could do. And I knew when I graduated that circumstances didn't line up my fifth year of college for me to really have the season that I wanted to. I had some really unfortunate things happen to me and we can talk about it, but I knew that there was more left. And so I always knew I wanted to train through the trials and kind of see how that goes. 
and give it an honest shot and try to run a personal best and just see how good I could get. And then my plan was always after the trials, if training for that one year out of college isn't something that I'm interested in, if it's too hard to work and train, I'll just focus on a career path and I'll just retire from, you know, post-collegiate running. So I got a part-time job out of college and that was really hard because I wasn't really making enough money to pay to travel, to race. And then pandemic hit and there weren't any races. And I did race once, but I pretty much had to drain my account to like go and I didn't race very well. And so it didn't really seem worth it. And um, that's when I pretty much decided that if I wanted to, after the pandemic, if I wanted to keep training until the trials, that I was going to need more money to be able to race more consistently. And so that's why I made the decision to get a full-time job. Was It was purely financial. Like I couldn't afford to feed myself and fly and get a hotel and you know pay these entry fees. And so I made the decision to get a full-time job. And I'm glad I did because I put myself into some very good races leading up into the trials. And the trials themselves cost me, you know, an arm and a leg to stay in Eugene for a week and a half. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just so amazing to hear this story, Val, because I think like, you know, there are opportunities, of course, where where people get picked up right away with a sponsorship or a company right after college. But if you don't, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It's just doing it a different way. And I just can't imagine. I mean, it just must be really tiring (laughs) to work full time and train at that level. Because I even know just from my experience, and I'm just a recreational athlete over here. But like, when I train for a marathon, that's the most mileage and most training that I do. And I don't do that year round, just a, a handful of times. But like, doing that is like, okay, my whole life is just kind of work and running and cooking because you have to eat to run. So that is right. Is it, that's what life is, right? <laughs> yep. That's a hundred percent what life is. And, you know, it, it can sometimes be tiring when, you know, if you have to finish your run by eight thirties, so you can quickly get a shower and get changed and get ready for work at nine. A lot of times you're waking up at five thirty to try to get out the door by six thirty, And you know, if you want to get nine hours of sleep, that means you got to bet, go to bed at like nine, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to be disciplined really for that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard. And, but, but it's the reality that most people have to face. And, you know, it is awesome when sponsors see value in you right out of college or even for some people out of high school. And, you know, you can afford to just, you know, run and really focus on that. But, you know, you and me are the majority. Most people have to work really, really hard at work and in their sport. And I think that it does take a lot of mental discipline to be able to figure out what your balance is. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I just think it's awesome to hear that. Like you just kept, you kept saying, okay, well, I want to pursue the running. Like after college, knowing I have untapped potential, I don't think I've, you know, seen everything that I can do just yet. So I want to keep pursuing this, but it meant, you know, well, this is what really getting after it is going to look like with working full time and everything. And, but it, but it worked. I know it did. (laughs) Surprise. Yay. And I really hope that other athletes can kind of see that like, you know, it's hard, but you can make it work. If if you really want to do it, you'll do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, getting to the Olympics is such a huge deal because, I mean, you're you're one of the top steeplechasers in the world. So that's a really huge deal, of course. But it doesn't mean that you can just like post Olympics, like flip your life upside down, like and, and you know, it, what does it look like now? You're, you're still working. And, and what is kind of your future goals? I'm sure you're aiming and hoping and and talking to agencies and stuff like that, but it's hard to just change your life just after one race. So what does kind of the future look like for you? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I'm sure a lot of people don't really understand that if you're sponsored and you make it to the Olympics, typically there's a bonus written into your contract where you will make a lot of money after you make that team. But I didn't have any support going into the Olympics. And so, you know, while I got some financial aid because, you know, I didn't work for basically a month leading up to that. And yeah, so I, I did receive some financial aid from USATF, but it's not like I got a big bonus check and my contract like beefed up for the next four years. I, nothing really changed. Like if I didn't have this full-time job, I wouldn't be able to put food on the table and pay rent. And so, yeah, making the Olympic team was amazing, but financially it didn't do much for me. And so you know, if I had had a contract going into the trials, it could have, you know, changed my life financially, but I didn't. So it didn't. And we are working. I, I am signed with an agent. I work with Josh Cox and I think he's great. And I have full confidence. He'll be able to get me a contract that's worth my while. But I mean, a lot of these shoe companies are looking for people to move across the country to join teams and, you know, they're a little apprehensive, like, oh, who's this Val girl? Like, she came out of nowhere. She made an Olympic team. That's great. But was she just a flash in the pan? I guess they'll find out this coming outdoor season, but that <laughs> wasn't the case. But, you know, it's it's tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, like you were saying, like, you came out of nowhere, but it was also the timing of post-college. That whole first year was COVID, so you didn't have any races to you know, do at that level. So it, it's not, it wasn't totally, you didn't come out of nowhere, but I can understand <laughs> where it seems like, cause it was college and then some time off, be, not your fault because of COVID. Yeah. And then boom. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think this is just inspirational though, of like, keep pursuing your dreams. If you love running, if you know that you've got potential, you can keep working at it and see where it takes you. And it's just a different, you know, a different story. And I, I'm sure it's going to keep taking you far. Like you said, you've, you've got an agent that's already, you know, working on things for you. So you're going to land exactly where you want to land. I think exactly. that's the appropriate thing to say. And yeah. in the meantime, <laughs> I'm fully happy just working my nine to five and just, you know, living the life that I've always lived. Yeah. So here's a question for you. When did you get into steeplechase? Because that's, I always like, that's just more of a unique running event. When did you decide I want to give this race a shot? Well, it's, this is actually really funny. I didn't really have much of a choice. Okay. Mark and Heather were kind of like, well, you're going to run the steeplechase. So here's what it is. And here's how you do it and go for it. And when I finally like ran fast enough for CU to consider recruiting me in high school, and I had my first phone call with uh, Mark and Heather, they told me on the phone, we're recruiting you for steeplechase. And mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, that's weird. What is that? Like, I didn't even know what it was. And <laughs> But they saw something in me, I guess, and it's paid off. The, yeah. So some coaches, some coaches know exactly what they're looking for. And you like fit that bill for them of this is what you're going to do. I think so. Yeah. 
And I don't know what it was exactly, but they saw something. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Did you fall in love with it right away or did you just do it and get good at it? (laughs) It was really heartbreaking for a while because I was really slow. Like, I don't know if anyone who went to the Olympics in the steeplechase started out as slow as I was in the steeplechase. My first steeplechase, I ran like 12 minutes. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there's plenty of people that run 12 minute steeplechases, but I was very disappointed because literally everyone else on the team was so much faster than me. And everyone else who did it was so much faster than me. And like Emma's first steeplechase was like two minutes faster than that, basically. And I was like, oh, this, this is really hard. I was like, but you know, I'm not terrible at it. Like it was my first couple steeplechases. Like I'll probably get better. And so I just stuck with it. And every year I was just able to get a little bit better, a little bit better. And then, you know, finally I had built up enough confidence and enough fitness where I was able to compete with some of the best women in the NCAA. And so it paid off. Yeah. You just stuck with it and trusted in your coaches too, you know, that, that they saw it in you, that this is going to be good for you if you just keep putting in the work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, your, was it your fifth year or your senior year? My fifth year. Your fifth year, you had some unfortunate events and just kind of really created a difficult time in your life. And do you want to dig into that a little bit more and share with our listeners what was going on at that time? Yeah, definitely. Well, luckily at that point, I was in a pretty good mental place. I had overcome some of my depression and I had overcome a lot of the eating disorders that I had been dealing with, you know, earlier on in college. But I, after an amazing cross country season, I placed 30th at NCAAs and my team won nationals and Danny Jones won the whole thing. And it was like the best cross country experience that I could have ever asked for. A couple weeks later, I got really, really sick. I got strep throat and it turns out I had mono. And mono is like the worst thing you can get as a runner because you pretty much have to take a month off. No exercise. You can't even weight lift. You can't swim. You can't bike. You certainly can't run. So I had to take a month off of everything. And then I was coming back and like I was really swollen from the mono and I just didn't feel very good for a long time. And then, you know, in, in January, I kind of started to feel a little bit better. And then I was training really hard because my goal was to make it to nationals again for the steeplechase. And then in March, I was riding my bike to school and a car came out of nowhere and hit me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I got hit by a car in March. I woke up in the ambulance and you know, I had a pretty bad concussion and I basically had to take another two weeks like off. And, and I was, you know, because of my concussion, I wasn't allowed to, to steeplechase or like come to practice for like another month. And so I had just come back from mono and then I get hit by a car. And then I was kind of just like, okay, I really just need to make the best of this. And my goal was still to qualify for nationals, but I kind of thought at that point, like, you know, if I'm an All-American, that would just be amazing. Because the year before I had finished fifth at nationals, and I was really hoping to like place better than that this coming year. And my fifth year, I ended up placing sixth, which is decent. But, you know, because of the things that happened earlier that year, it was just, it was really hard to to make that come around. 
yeah, like you said, a series of unfortunate events for sure. With <laughs> get you know, getting sick and getting hit by a car. Gosh, it's just awful. And you know, you mentioned too, and and this I think is a great kind of focus of our conversation today of of having overcome like some depression of your past too. And it's always interesting what life throws at you of like you overcome depression and then these terrible things happen. Yeah. Um, and I don't know which how you want to answer this question first, but like do you think that having dealt with some of those mental health issues maybe and and kind of being in a good place is what allowed you to maybe get through that really difficult year better. Yeah, I think that you know, there were some really really dark dark moments that I had gone through in college and you know like when you think about possibly killing yourself mm. and like how much you hate yourself when you're depressed. It's just, it's terrible. Nobody deserves to feel that way. And so I finally started loving myself and my body. And I could finally like love my friends again. <laughs> and so just like when I look at that part of my life, just how sad everything was and really depressing, like, yeah, really depressing stuff. And then it was like, okay, well, so what I got sick, at least I love my body, even though I am swollen from mono, like, I still love myself. And, you know, I got hit by a car, but I'm happy it didn't kill me, you know? Yeah. And because there were points in my life where I was like, I wish a car would hit me and just like, yeah, kill me. And that is nobody deserves to feel like that. And so you were in a lot of pain. Yeah. And so regardless of what happens now, I am just so thankful for the moment. So thankful for like all of my experiences, the good and the bad, because it really puts everything into perspective. When something doesn't go your way, when, you know, you suffer an injury or your body changes for one way or another, at least now, it's not something that I would like want to hurt myself over or, you know, hate myself, look in the mirror and, and just like say all these horrible, horrible things about myself, about my body, about the way I am. And, you know, building confidence like that is not easy. It is the hardest thing you can possibly do. But, but once you have it, once you're sure of yourself, it's a lot harder to be shaken. So. I know that was kind of like heavy, but uh, it's, I think yeah. it's important for people to know because, you know, unfortunately, it's a really common experience. Far, far too common. And I think, Val, it, it's great that you are willing to share what you went through because I know when somebody, well, actually, I won't say I that I know because I don't want to undermine what people are going through. But like, I can only imagine when people are going through that, they feel like they must be the only ones feeling like this, yes. you know, and they yes. must be looking out at the world and everybody else is so happy and everybody else has it all together. And why am I like this? And so to, it doesn't change somebody's situation, but just knowing, okay, I'm not alone. Other people have dealt with this. And so how did you deal with it, Val? What type of, you know, what, at what point in your life did you pivot and start getting some sort of help or resources? What did that look like for you? Yeah. So a teammate told the coaches that she was worried about me. And then the coaches had a conversation with me and the coaches were like, she is not well. There is something really bad going on. And 
you know, it's tough when you're on a college team because it's easy to kind of slip through the cracks sometimes. And mm, unfortunately, a lot of people, yeah. yeah, the team is big and everyone's doing different stuff. And, you know, at the time they were getting ready for Pac-12s, they were getting ready for nationals. And so a lot of us who were injured weren't really around. But then when Heather and Mark did finally realize that there was something really bad going on, I was like, you know, I had a mandatory doctor appointment where I was diagnosed with like clinical severe depression. And then I also had mandatory meetings with the sports psychologist and was shortly after that put on some antidepressants that probably saved my life, Mm. which is sad to think about, but like, that's where I was at. And then the combination of medication and and seeing the psychologist twice a week for months it saved my life and I'm so grateful because I've been able to do so much you know and like I am just so glad I didn't do anything to hurt myself mm-hmm. and I think that that medication and seeing the psychologist it made the world of a difference and and you know, sometimes you're, you're just like, you're so depressed that you really need that boost from that medication because oh yeah, it's, it's not like, it's not a part of our brains to like, want to kill ourselves. Like that's not mm-hmm. normal. And you know, your brain sometimes rebels against you and your brain is releasing chemicals that it shouldn't be releasing and and it's not releasing chemicals that it should be releasing and so you know seeking treatment to help correct that is just so important but there's no way I would have seeked it out on my own like and I don't know if it's because of the stigma surrounding it or you know if I was just like I couldn't see that I was like so deep in this hole yeah. And so I'm I'm really glad that there was intervention because I would not have come out of it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why people struggle to seek help themselves and sure stigma might be part of it, but also it's like, well, as you're saying, there was an imbalance in your brain. You things weren't being, you know, thinking normally and as you are now, you weren't thinking that way then. And then also, I think, yeah, sometimes we definitely, when we feel like we're in a hole, it just seems like too much to get out of that we don't even know where to start or how, or we don't think we might not feel like there is hope. So some takeaways that I'm hearing from you, Val, is like just one, the importance of other people to speak up if you think that a friend or a teammate or a coworker is struggling because that person might not be able to help themselves and it, and probably the other people speaking up and your teammates and talking to your coaches and being like, I think there's a problem it is something that saved your life because then the proper resources, you were forced into it, but thankfully, yes, you know, mm-hmm. so that's one thing I'm hearing from you. And an- another thing I'm hearing too is you know, the importance of medication, because then I think there's stigmas associated with that too, of like, I should be able to figure this out on my own, or like, maybe I just need to meditate. And it's like, no, (laughs) (laughs) all the meditation in the world would not have done anything. There's a time and a place for medication to, to treat real medical concerns. And that's, you know, what mental health really, like, 
I think there's, there's our generalized, okay, everybody stresses, everybody has bad days, but you've got to, there's a, a line of suddenly like when every day, like those thoughts, I think what you said would really hit, hit me of like, it's not a normal human thought to want to kill yourself because it's not, there's a human will to live and a will to survive throughout all of human history. So yeah, that's a huge red flag. And honestly, I, I don't think I've ever really thought of it in that way before this conversation. Yeah, it's, it's some heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we are so grateful for the resources, the sports psychologist, your teammates, and for medication that yep. is allowing you to be here today and represent Team USA and, <laughs> yeah. um, and just, you know, be a, a light in this world now. Yeah, definitely. I, I am beyond grateful for all of those things. Definitely. Hey fans, I hope you are enjoying this conversation so far and we'll be back to it in just a moment. But first, I want to pause and let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Female Athlete System of Transformation, aka the Fast Track to Overcome Disordered Eating and Use Food as Fuel to Perform at Your Highest Level. The Female Athlete System of Transformation is my unique program and proven systems to guide female athletes to understanding and implementing the proper nutrition for their sport, life, and health. Myself and my team of registered sports dietitians work one-on-one -on -one with clients to address their unique needs and counsel them through the nutritional and behavioral changes needed. Many female athletes who resonate with disordered eating, mental guilt around food and body, relative energy deficiency in sport or female athlete triad, amenorrhea, repeat injuries due to negligent nutrition, or frankly, just a lack of knowledge and understanding on their fueling needs have seen incredible success in the fast track. After years of working as a sports RD, I've compiled the most effective ways for female athletes to learn nutrition, be supported, be challenged, and ultimately find their success with fueling as fast as possible. So don't wait another day. Get to your goals faster by joining the Female Athlete System of Transformation. Look in the show notes or head to the website to book a free call and learn more. Okay, now let's get you back to the conversation. Enjoy. So you also mentioned, and I've read a little bit of, of your story online too, of like, of struggling the, with eating disorders, like wrapped up in this. And, and for you, you know, is it, was an eating disorder part of the depression or preceding or, or a result of two separate things, all one in the same? <laughs> I, well, for me, I think, and I think everybody's different and everyone struggles with eating disorders in a different way. But for me, I, I'm kind of an anxious person to begin with. And so I think that maybe this eating disorder was like a way that I could feel less anxious, but it also created a lot of anxiety in and itself. But I was kind of using this eating disorder to like feel like I had control over something. And I was, was not in a good place because of it. And it, made me hate my body. It made me have all this like, I don't know. I just, I, I hated myself when I had my eating disorder. And I don't think that that helped when I eventually developed depression because I became depressed because of an injury. I think I got injured and I, 
I got injured because of my eating disorder. I had really low bone density and I got a stress reaction in my calcaneus. And that forced me to take, you know, like a couple months off. And in those months, because I couldn't really exercise as much as I had been in the past, I gained a lot of weight. And I think my metabolism probably changed because of the eating disorder as well. And so I put on some weight. And because of this eating disorder, that just made me hate myself so much. And that's horrible to base your self-worth off of a perception of what you think you should be is, is horrible. And that's what I was doing. And I would say things like, oh, no one's going to like you if you're not thin or you'll never make a team if you're not thin. And, you know, this is just what you have to do if you want to be the best. And these are all things that like we now we know like, well, that's not correct. Like that's clearly false. And I was seeing a nutritionist with CU, but the information she was giving me, I think I was taking it in a direction that like I probably shouldn't have taken it. And it was, it, it definitely led to the depression. Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, there's a lot of overlap and um, you can certainly have one without the other. And in isolation, you can certainly have them together, but it's, it's like, eating issues got, might have been contributing to the bone issues, which contributed to the to the injury, which then led to depression, which then led to more eating disorder because you're trying to find control in some part of your life. But then that led to hating yourself more and more depression. So yeah, we can go on and on. This is just a downward negative spiral. But I think it's important to talk about as to why, you know, for listeners to just think like, if you're starting to feel mentally unstable, depressed, not liking yourself, not liking your body, like is suddenly getting obsessive about your food going to be the answer or maybe potentially make this worse in the long run? It would definitely make it worse. I would think so because the reality is, is like everyone's body is going to change. And if you fight that, it's like fighting nature. You can't do it. My body certainly changed in the last four to five years a lot and it's okay. And it's the only thing that you actually have in this world is your body. And if you don't treat it with respect, a lot of terrible, unfortunate things can be a side effect of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you. You know, it's, it's interesting too how you said when you saw the dietitian, maybe she was giving you perfectly fine information, but we weren't using it in the right way. And that, that is such the danger with nutrition. And it's, it's funny because like for me as a dietitian, you know, I've worked with many different populations, right? And now I'm focusing solely on female athletes. And one of the reasons for that is because it's like, everybody's needs are different and nutrition should be individualized. And these messages that you're, you're preaching, like what I'm preaching to one population might be the exact opposite of what another population needs to hear, right? And so it's like, that's kind of why I had somebody call me up last week and they were like, you know, oh, it was a, a potential male client. And I was just like, I'm sorry. Like, and I used to work all with male men too. And I totally switched gears. Um, and I work only with women now, but I'm like, you know, because I just have to, like, it's easier for me as a dietitian and it's easier for anybody listening to me to like, know, like, this is the information that's going to be better for you. And then I'm not like getting it too confusing and conflicting with other information because we can definitely do that. It's like even talking 
you know, I'm just thinking of an example of dietitians, you know, nutrition 101 is like writing calorie recommendations and figuring out somebody's macros. And it's like, this could be something that really hurts somebody. Yes. And it could really help somebody else. Mm -hmm. But it could really hurt somebody if that information's in the wrong mind at the wrong time. Yep. And that's kind of where I was. The nutritionist had like provided some, you know, useful like, oh, well, you know, for runners, you probably want to be like lean and you want to like have like strong muscles. So this is what you should probably do. And, you know, I took it to like the extreme and it did not end well (laughs) for me. As many female athletes do, we like to take things to the extreme. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) And, uh, and if somebody's going to give us like a goal or a target, we're like, I'm going to meet that. In fact, I'm going to beat that. And if our brain is thinking of beating means less or more regimented or air quotes healthier, then this is where we go down the disordered eating path very, very easily. And yeah. Yeah, I know because some people are like some some of my clients or again, potential clients might call me and be like, so do you never give out macros? And I'm like, well, it, it really depends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Every client is going to be different. And um, so I have a, a program I work with my clients called the Female Athlete System of Transformation, where most of the girls in that program resonate somewhere somehow with disordered eating. Everybody's got a different definition and personal story of what that means. But I've got some girls in that program that I'm like, yeah, we can talk macros and grams. We've got other, we've got other girls that I don't even say the word calorie around them. I just say the word energy all the time. You know? That's really good. Yes. Yeah, so not even saying the word <laughs> calorie. So it's a really individualized process. Right. But yeah, I think I'm probably babbling on about this a little too much, but just knowing like, this is why nutrition information isn't everything. Yes. You know, it's not just about having the information. It's about figuring out a way and a method of making it work for you and the application of that information. That's really important. And I mean, it would be awesome if CU could just like figure it out and like have it just work. But you know, these institutions are working with hundreds and hundreds of athletes and every four years they have new people. And it's just, unfortunately, like in these giant university situations, it is really easy to just say, okay, we're going to do a one size fits all. And then for some people that is really bad, but for some people they really thrive. And it's just kind of an unfortunate you know, hand that these young women are dealt. Yeah, yeah, no, it is difficult. And so I was just working, my most recent collegiate job was at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And I was just part-time there contracting because I have my own business. But their sports med staff made a point that they wanted somebody, a sports dietitian with a disordered eating background because they're they're kind of prioritized that. But I always felt a little guilty that I'm like, well, I'm not, because I was only part-time, that I wasn't hitting like, the football players needs and not to say football players can't have disordered eating because they can, anybody can, but like, I wasn't necessarily meeting the needs of like the football team with their traveling and their fueling station, their smoothie making. Cause I was doing all these one-on-one like consults for the disordered eating. And so, yeah, at a big institution, you really, you need, there needs to be multiple layers of support and resources. And that's not always, po- it's just not always possible, which I think, what I want to say about it is to figure out what you need. And even if there's a dietitian on your college 
campus or whatever, like maybe you need to go find a specialist, you know, and it might not be the resource that they have, but as long as you find the resource that's right for you, that's the most important thing. Yes, definitely. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I really hope that that can kind of become more normalized. Yeah, for sure. So in, as you got out of clinical depression as well, did, is, did that help with recovery from disordered eating or was that like a whole, a separate process that you also had to go through? I think that, you know, recovering from the clinical depression, like once I got out of that, I had a whole new appreciation for my life Mm -hmm. and I valued myself again. (laughs) And part of that was like learning to love my body. (laughs) And so for me, it, it, it was like, two paths that finally converged to like health. And that was cool. Yeah. And so like I was able to work through, you know, recovering from this clinical depression. And then simultaneously, I was able to like unlock all these things like, oh my gosh, like this is why I have this disordered eating. This is when it started. These are the people that like influenced me on this path. And and then I was working through that at the same time. And then I feel like when I kind of came out of it, I, you know, had a better idea of what was causing this disordered eating and like how to stop. And, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to fully recover. I know it's possible, right? Because to say that it's not possible is like really dark, but it's hard. It's really hard. And, and, you know, Unfortunately, sometimes dark thoughts still like creep into my head. And but luckily now I have some really great tools to just like deal with it, come to terms with it, and then just like move on and and keep heading down up like a positive, food happy, body image happy path. Yeah. You know, that's a great point though, is especially for people going through recovery to keep in mind that like if you're having these dark thoughts, as you said, or just bad thoughts or still a desire to control, restrict, binge, whatever it might be. There's a difference between having that thought and actually doing it. And that's how you know, okay, I I am recovering. I am getting better because it's one thing to have a thought, but it's a totally different thing to act on it. And if you're acting on it, that's, you know, it's okay, but we're still working towards not acting on it. Right. Exactly. Um, Getting towards that. But yeah, I think that's so many people are like, well, how do you know mentally, you know, cause it eating disorders are mental health disorder. And it's like, how do you know if you're recovered when you're having these thoughts, but we have thousands of thoughts every single day, (laughs) you know, like, like 80,000 thoughts a day, no joke. So, <laughs> so some of them are going to be dark. That's, you know, <laughs> we don't want all of them to be, but some of them are going to be. And so there's just remembering that like a thought is just a thought and, and you still have a choice in your actions and your behaviors. And so, yeah, it sounds like for you once, once depression, like you said, it was kind of happening at the same time because you were loving yourself is at the core of this. Mm-hmm. It was. You figure, yes, you figured out how to love yourself, which I don't know. I'm kind of like, how, Val? How did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was a lot of like one-on-ones with a psychologist, a lot of like runs by myself where I was just really 
you know, thinking about stuff like stuff in high school that started affecting me and then like how certain things affected me in college. And, you know, I saw all these red flags where I'm like, oh my gosh, like now if I saw this, I would have said something. I would have been like, dude, this is bad. Like we need to address this immediately. Like this person clearly needs some help and, you know, they might be affecting others with their actions. And yeah, so now it's just kind of like, okay, well, I can't, I can't be around that kind of stuff anymore. Like I just can't. And, and it's nice that, you know, I pretty much train kind of on my own. Like I'm kind of with the CU team because I still train with Mark and Heather, but I'm, I'm separated. I have enough separation where I don't have to see this stuff all the time. And, you know, Mark and Heather are pretty good about trying to like stop stuff before it gets too bad, but there's obviously things that they can't control. And, you know, post-collegiately, I don't really, I would never really want to train with someone who was stressing me out based on some of that stuff. And so it's a lot of like self-protection. That's how I figured it out. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because you do, right. You, you would never, ever, ever want to go back to a place that you were in before in college. And so how do we make sure it's surrounding yourself with the right people? And if it, if you're in a toxic environment, if there's people around you that like just their behaviors, their actions, their thoughts, their words, or could negatively influence you, we got to get out of that because you have to protect yourself. We can't control other people. We want to try and help other people, but we can't control what they're going to say or what they're going to do. And sometimes you just have to create an environment for yourself where you're not exposed to that, you know? Yeah, exactly. On the nutrition side, I think that's also like the struggle for so many people just because of our culture and our society. <laughs> can You know, we call it diet culture, just kind of sometimes it's it can... So many people have a toxic relationship with food and body. So it's it's around us a lot. It's hard to escape. So I would say just as the dietitian is like when you're when you're trying to overcome it yourself, you need to do self-protection, right? And just maybe get out of that environment, not be friends with those people anymore, get off of social media. And then when you're in a place where you are more confident, you are doing better, that's where if you get those, you know, have those conversations or see somebody with a problem, maybe you can speak up, you know, and it helps that person, but it also helps you. And that, I mean, that's like, that's what I do now when it comes to like anything nutrition, like diet culture of people saying things like, oh, that's too much sugar. It's like, I'm, I'm in the place where I say something. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, it's not. It's a piece mm-hmm. of fruit. <laughs> like, no. Oh, <laughs> I just, like, right. I just shut it down. Um, but instead of just being like, oh, I don't want to listen to that. So I'll like, I yeah. confront it. And so that's my hope for other people too, is you do what you need to do to protect yourself. And then when you're in a good place and you can just like, you confront it and you start being the change that other people need to, yeah, to hear. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of times, you know, people get in these habits of just like accepting this diet culture of accepting you know, these really weird, not normal eating patterns that maybe they see that they either see online or that they're seeing from somebody else. And it's amazing to hear that at least, you know, you're able to like say something because I don't have any dietitian like knowledge or anything. And so I only see something I'm like, Oh, that's a red flag. Like, I can't be around this. But to hear you say that you're actually standing up and speaking out, that makes me really happy. 
Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's my job, right? It's my job and I'm confident in doing it. And I've got the science behind me too as well. (laughs) Yep. Um, So yeah, hopefully, and hopefully that's, you know, one of the goals of this podcast too, to keep to keep spreading this information so people feel more confident and and not normalizing that everybody doing a you know pre-holiday diet like that's not normal that's not that makes me really sad yeah to hear well it's interesting that you say that because okay I have a roommate now Uh, my boyfriend and I just recently this year we got a new roommate and she ran in college and she was a part of a really good team in college and you know like we just sit down to dinner and if I'm hungry, I'm going to eat like two baked potatoes and some chicken. And like, I love snacking. I'm always eating chips and fruit and like nuts and stuff. And she said something to me the other day that, that I would love to share with the listeners. She said, Val, I've never known someone who's been better at me in running that eats more than me. And so I want people to know wow. that like, just because you see people maybe around you that don't eat very much and they're performing well, it it doesn't always, like, that's not the norm. Like, Mm -hmm. to be in my position, to be a world-class runner, you have got to fuel. I don't see very many women on the starting line who, in the steeplechase, who are starving themselves, at least not in the final, not in the final. At the the Olympic final, there was not a single woman on the starting line that I was like, she's got a problem. Everyone looked strong because you have to be that eating disorder can only take you so far. And it might take you straight into the ground, like you're going to break your bones, and it's going to be a horrible disaster. And if you want to compete at the highest level, you have got to eat, you have got to fuel your body, you have got to like, have these experiences, because food isn't just fuel, it's also a cultural thing. It's also a spiritual thing. Like, when you eat something that tastes so good, your brain goes to like a different place. Like you're just so happy. And you know, it's what we're designed to do. We're designed to eat. And we've like been evolving with our food. And so now we just want tasty, tasty food and you should eat it. (laughs) If you want a cupcake, have the cupcake. If you want to eat some Lay's potato chips, have them. And you know what? Like it'll all work out the way it's supposed to. Like if you're training well, if you're happy, then that's all that should matter. That was my little soapbox. Sorry. It was wonderful. I loved it, Val. <laughs> <laughs> you can come on the podcast and, and get on your soapbox any anytime you want. Okay? <laughs> but yes, I I really love that you said everybody on the starting line, they were strong, they were fueled. If you want to make it, if you want to compete, if you want to train, you've got to eat. You are exactly right that an eating disorder, controlling your food, you know, losing a couple pounds, whatever it might be, this, this will only get you so far. It comes to an end and it doesn't get you to the highest level. It doesn't get you to your maximum potential either. Bottom line, that's it. So these are things that, that you just have to resolve. And so kind of switching gears, I think Val, as you're mentioning, like you eat two baked potatoes, like things like that. Like I always like to ask, you know, what are some of the if you could share to our listeners who are just fangirling and like <laughs> what you know like you know just how does she eat and get to that level so what are some things that you do fuel with or some of your favorite like yeah ways to eat and keep your body like strong and yeah fit for running great question well every morning i start out with a cup of coffee and i also like to eat cookies in the morning so i do too <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> they go with so coffee. So for breakfast, I like to have cookies. Yes. yes. Cookies yes. and coffee. It goes together. Mm-hmm. And so I always eat cookies and coffee in the morning for breakfast. And if I run out of cookies, I guess I'll eat oatmeal, but I'm like oatmeal is whatever, but cookies, that's what yes. I want for breakfast. And so I go to Costco and I buy these cu- cookies because I'm actually severely lactose intolerant. And so I eat a lot of stuff that's vegan, but I am not a vegan. I just want to preface that <laughs> at the beginning. Sure. I eat vegan yeah. baked goods because if I eat butter or cream or milk, I have some serious indigestion and other issues. So I go to Costco and I buy these vegan cookies. They're called Heavenly Hunks. They're delicious. And I eat like probably four or five of these cookies in the morning for breakfast before a run. And then I go for a run and then I come back and I have a cup of decaf coffee because I'm already a spaz. I don't need any more <laughs> caffeine. And then usually after the run, I'll make myself like an egg bagel sandwich. So I'll fry an egg and I'll make a bagel. And sometimes I'll put like salami on it or like other kind of deli meat if, if I'm feeling particularly hungry that morning. And then, you know, I work. So I'll cook up my breakfast and I'll sit down and I'll work for a couple hours and then Usually I get hungry. So I will snack on like apples and nuts. And then usually for lunch, this is bad as a nutritionist, you're going to cringe, but I love cup of ramen, oh, a yeah. little cup of noodle soup. And so l- for lunch, I usually eat like a cup of ramen. Soup. You're getting your sodium in your electrolytes. That's for sure. Exactly. You, need that, you need that with how much you sweat, I'm sure. <laughs> and then usually in the afternoon, like kind of before I start cooking dinner, I'll have another snack and usually I'm hungry for like chips in the afternoon. So then usually I'll eat like chips and salsa or chips and guac, or sometimes I'll eat hot Cheetos. And then for dinner, I usually try to cook something that's like, you know, has a little bit of all the good stuff. Like I try to have protein and carbs and usually some like colorful vegetables to try to like get some I guess, vitamins or whatever. (laughs) So that's what a day of eating looks like. And I don't have much of a sweet tooth. So usually after dinner, I'm just like ready for bed and I don't really feel like snacking. But sometimes on the weekend, if I have like an early dinner and I'm hungry before bed, I'll eat more cookies. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I love that. Lots of food freedom in there combined with, you know, eating before and after your run and snacking all throughout the day as needed throughout your work day too. Yeah, because it's it it gets boring, you know, sitting there working. And so sometimes like to stay awake, it's nice to have some snacks to have that little glucose burst, you know, can help get you through like a really, a really dull afternoon at work. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I am cracking up at the cookies with coffee because I'm all down for that too. And like this year that we made um for Christmas, like sugar cookies, and it was like oh. for two weeks straight, I was having couple of sugar cookies, my Christmas cookies with coffee yeah. every morning. My husband was finally like, what are you doing? I was like, they just go with coffee. That's they like do. the time of day to eat them. <laughs> yes. Because like I said, I don't have much of a sweet tooth at night, but for some reason in the morning, all I want is a cup of coffee and like a sweet dessert pastry thing. Yeah. The sweet breakfast with coffee. It's a good pairing. It is. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome, Val. Well, I think this has been just a great conversation and especially like all that you were willing to share with your story with depression and mental health. And it's just, of course, wonderful that you're in a better place now and that you, you know, have found that love for yourself because you are deserving of it in 
in all of those, all the ways, in all the ways. <laughs> so I just think it's amazing that you're willing to share this with other people and give hope to other people too. Yeah, of course, because I don't want anyone to have to feel the way I felt and nobody should have to suffer like that alone. And I think that if, if I had known about professional runners who had struggled, maybe I would have had the courage to like speak up and say something. But you know, when I was young, professional runners just seemed perfect. Like there was nothing wrong that they were just happy, perfect, running fast. And I didn't feel like any of those things. And so I think it's good if if people know that even the best runners in the US, you know, have insecurities and have dealt with hard things. Mm -hmm. Best runners in the world, Val. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. You're one, of the best, you're one of the best in the world. So yeah, <laughs> thank you. yeah, absolutely. Well, Val, I always close out every podcast with some fun questions. If you want to yeah. play along, let's play. I'm curious if I already know the answer to the first one, but okay. So if there's one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would it be? I get sick of it. Probably hot Cheetos. Hot Cheetos. Wow. Yeah. But the problem is, is they first. upset my stomach. And so because they have like milk derivatives in them. And so usually I save those for like, if I have an easy run or like maybe after a really hard workout when I'm like, it's fine if my stomach's upset. <laughs> I love that. My husband actually is also a fan of hot Cheetos and like will very often eat them before a run. And then, and then during the run, he's like, I shouldn't have had the hot Cheetos, but like he can't help himself because they're he really so good. Them. Yeah, they're they're yeah, addictive. They're very. Good. I love them. <laughs> yeah, that's too funny. So I think, but I think you've got it right. Maybe after a run, yes, better. I've got to give my husband that tip. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Okay, what is your favorite sport to participate in? I love fun run five Ks yeah. because then I can like because I suck at everything else. I have zero hand-eye coordination and I like can't ice skate. I'm not that great at skiing. Like I'm really not that good of an athlete besides running. And so it's like a fun run 5k and I can like jog around with like my friends and a big group of people and like get the little participation t-shirt afterwards. That's like my favorite thing. I love that. That's really fun. How about as a spectator? What is your favorite sport to watch? I am a huge Formula One fan, actually. Yeah. And so my boyfriend and I went and watched the Circuit of the Americas, Austin, Texas Grand Prix. Yes. And that was one of the coolest experiences ever. And so we want to go watch more. This is hilarious because I actually was there yesterday at the Circuit of the Americas in Austin. Oh, um, lucky you. Yeah, my my husband is, now I'm talking about my husband on this podcast. He's a car guy and loves car racing. And there was, it was called Super Lap Battle. In, oh. And we went to it yesterday because I'm in San Antonio. So that was just a drive. And I almost, what we almost went to the Formula One thing. It was this past October, right? Yes, That's the one you went to. Yes, mm -hmm. I almost got him tickets, but he had to work that weekend. So I couldn't. It was oh, going to no. be his birthday present. And I couldn't go. So I will have to try and go another time, but it's, I I'm new to this. So I like, I'm getting into it because of him, but I think it's a lot cool. of people are into it. Yeah. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool that you're into that too. 
Awesome. And that's another, that's another first. Hot Cheetos and Formula One are two firsts as far as answers go. <laughs> that's so funny. Well, I love it. I'm kind of a weird gal, so. I love it, Val. Okay. And then last question, if there is a female athlete that you want to give a shout out to for being, you know, just an inspiration or role model in, in your personal life or even just, you know, professionally, who would that be and why? You know, I have really been really amazed with everything that Nikki Hiltz has kind of been like paving the way for because Nikki recently came out as trans and I think that that's really cool and that they are like really advocating for it and making it a part of their everyday life to like really push for trans people in sports and they recently had a post on Instagram about all this unfortunate stuff that's happening to this division 1 swimmer who's just like trying to compete and there's a lot of pushback against this athlete competing and so I think that Nikki Hiltz has done a lot and I just cannot wait to see what else they have in store because they're amazing that's awesome so shout out to Nikki Hiltz for paving the way Awesome. Well, Val, thank you so much for this conversation and sharing your story with our listeners. We really appreciate you and your time. And we're really excited to continue watching you run as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lindsay. And hurdle. Run and hurdle. Run and hurdle. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) Thank you. Awesome. I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right now, so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. First, I have your Red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with Red S, curious to learn more, or know you have Red S and are looking to recover fast, then you can head to www.riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S and download the red S recovery race. See how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery. Plus while there, I have a few other great resources for you, including three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to our private Facebook community, female athlete nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this, head to riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S that's backslash R E D S. And you can gain access and get the help you need fast. Too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition, but you don't have to any longer become fierce, fit and fueled links in the show notes, and I'll see you next time.